Reflections on the Hebrew Prophets by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 1 In the long speeches at the end of Deuteronomy, which Moses is essentially making his spiritual bequest to the Israelites, he bestows upon them the law and the, the prescriptions and so on and essentially tells them how to live. And he sums it up most succinctly in the 30th chapter of Deuteronomy where he says, and this is a very oft-quoted passage from Moses, and Moses says, I set before you life and death. Choose you therefore life. That's the, the phrase, the, the phrases that stick in one's mind and, and that are often repeated more or less in those words. That's really what it, that's what it's all about. That's what the Bible is all about. So that's, with that we have to judge things. I said before you life and death, choose you therefore life. The problem, of course, is that it's difficult to know what is life, what genuinely pr promotes life, and what does not. It's easy to be tricked. C.S. Lewis said, uh, heaven is an acquired taste. And the same thing could be said about life, that we have to learn a little bit about it before we know how to choose it properly. We might, in the first instance, make mistakes about it. I know if somebody had said, you know, uh, Howard Thurman told me, do what makes you come alive. Well, he, he told me that when I was in my late 20s, I guess. And uh, if he had told me that when I was 16, I knew exactly what made me come alive when I was 16. It was to uh, get in a 1956 Mercury and make it go 120 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, somebody else would have looked on to that and said, that is choosing death. You see, that is choosing death. The modern equivalent, I guess, is drugs. So an untutored choice for what seems like life can be death. And so one has to learn something about how this choice is made. It's a, it's a much more sophisticated choice than you think at first. Uh, I think of that Reinhold Niebuhr, wonderful thing Reinhold Niebuhr said that we've talked about here in the past. He said, uh, the self cannot realize itself most fully when self-realization is its conscious aim. Well, that's a version of this, uh, the, the subtlety that goes into the choosing of life. Well, the passage in Moses goes on. He says, I said before you life and death, choose you therefore life, so that you and your descendants may live in the love of Yahweh your God, obeying his voice, clinging to him. So you choose life in order to live in the love of God. And then it goes on. For in this, that is to say living in the love of God, for in this your life consists. And on this depends your long stay in the land which Yahweh swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, to choose life is to learn to live in the love of God on which depends our stay in the promised land. What Moses is saying, in a way, or I think a piece of wisdom we could take from what Moses is saying, is that the promised land is the love of God, much more so than a piece of geography. The promised land is the love of God. Now, how do we get to the promised land? How do we live in the promised land? That's what the Bible is all about. How do we choose life abundantly enough 
to finally live in the promised land, which is the love of God. What's life for? Very elementary question. Why life? What is life for? Well, uh, it's elementary enough to defy all answers, but I, I'd, I'd like to exercise on that subject for a second. First of all, we'd have to ask, use that question which uh, Guggenbull Craig, a uh, Jungian scholar, uh, used on the, on the issue of marriage. Uh, in, a, in his book on marriage, he said, it, it, the first thing you have to decide is that marriage, is it a welfare institution or a soteriological institution, meaning a institution having to do with salvation. And uh, all the difference in the world, depending on which of those you think it is. If you think it has, if you think it's a welfare institution, namely, does uh, one that has primarily to do with maximizing comfort and pleasure and minimizing its opposite, then you'll approach it in such a way. Uh, but if you decide it's so, a salvational institution that has deeper meaning, and if, uh, one in which, for instance, uh, happiness or comfort or pleasure would be like spring, you know, it would come around every once in a while, but would not be what the whole thing is about, would be part of the process. Uh, and so if you have that attitude about, Guggenbrook Craig says, about marriage, then you, then, then you approach it in a different way. Life, similarly, is it a welfare or a soteriological operation? Well, imagine us or the Israelites or anybody else trying to address Moses' injunction, which is to choose life, we need, first of all, to have some feeling for that question. Is it salvation or welfare? And only when we sort that out can we begin to make reasonably accurate assessments of how to choose life. And, of course, in the, in the biblical tradition, you have the impulse, which is in all of us, to assume it's a welfare in, uh, operation and to choose for comfort, wealth, victory, prominence, da-da-da-da, security. Security really is the big one, isn't it? So what I would suggest is that we think of life as, as a soteriological or salvation operation and however, whatever way we want to think about it. And then to a ask ourselves, how can we live in the love of God? And what is life all about? Why life? And specifically, why human life? Now, the, in the Western tradition, we have come to think of the biblical text as God's self-revelation in history. And we've come to think of cre uh, the, the material world as God's self-revelation in nature or in the cosmos. Well, what if we were to think of life as God's self-revelation in personality, in the human context? Meaning, and if that were the case, this is all what-ifs, these are all what-ifs, but if that were the case, then the purpose of life would be to live in such a way that, that uh, it would be harder at the end of one's life for oneself and others to deny the existence of God than it was when life started. There's a French Archbishop of Paris who once said, uh, to live the life of faith, one must live in such a way that one's life would be absurd if God does not exist. And, of course, the mystery cannot be proved, but one way of saying it would be to say, uh, to live in such a way that my life adds circumstantial evidence for the, exist for the existence of God. The only way one can avoid, quote, pagan history, pagan cults, 
is to refuse to be taken in by the mythologies that, gives, that give their victimizing mechanisms legitimacy. And that's why the Bible is over and over and over again so concerned about the possibility that the Israelites might copy their neighbors. And that meant buying in to, their, to the mythological alibis that justified sacrificing human victims. And they avoided that to a large extent, relying on, a, on the law and the cult. And the, in, a, in a way, the, the animal sacrificial cult in, in Israel was a kind of methadone program. It, was, it, it allowed a certain uh, cathartic process to take place below the threshold of human victimization. And so it, kept, it sort of kept draining away that, uh, that need to convene a, 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 a cultural group with a sacrificial act. Using a, the primitive tools of prohibition and animal sacrifice, the Israelites were able, in the main, to avoid outright human victimization as a cultural uh, foundation and maintenance operation, by and large. And the reason they could do that was not only because of the prohibitions and the, and the animal sacrifice, but because, following the injunction of their spiritual leaders, they were not duped by the mythological rationalizations that gave legitimacy to the victimizing ritual. They didn't buy into the myths. And their prophetic voices said, you must not buy into those myths. You must not do that. If you, if you worship that God, pretty soon you'll be slaughtering your children on the altar. You can't do it. The, the, you can't bind it. So not only prohibitions and the animal sacrifice, but a warning about the seductive myths of those others. Those myths are cover-ups. Those myths provide a kind of moral immunization to the realization of what they're actually accomplishing, which is human victimization. So there's a warning about that. And they're able pretty much with those things in place the prohibitions, the animal sacrifice, and the warning about pagan mythology, they're able to keep more or less free of the human victimization. When they get into history, however, as to say, when they cross the Jordan and begin to fight for land, begin to lay claim to land that somebody else has laid claim to, they enter into history's mimetic vortex. And there, another myth arises. And this myth is the myth of history. And they are unable to resist the seductions of that myth. They find themselves now slaughtering people on the battlefield. It's not happening at the altars. It's not immediately noticed as a, uh, as a, as a religious backsliding. See, it doesn't appear to be... They can still have their little cult operations over here. It's perfectly okay. But meanwhile, there's human bloodletting going on on a massive scale. And the whole problem which their, which their prohibition tried to avoid, which is the problem of the mimetic, the, the genesis of the mimetic cycle, desire, rivalry, violence, catharsis, victimization, all of that now is being played out with perfect abandon in the context of history. Whereas the very same thing in the context of cult worship was prohibited. So what's happened is they have encountered a myth that is 
too powerful for them using their existing rather primitive tools for uh, annealing themselves to the mythological seductions. So what I'm trying to picture is crossing the Jordan, entering into history in a, in a mythology that is, that is supremely seductive and, and makes the most bloodshed on a horrendous scale perfectly logical and perfectly legitimate and perfectly morally immunized. You know, today uh, it's, it's clear that our uh, technology is outrunning our theological and moral capacity to deal with the technology. So there, there are ethicists popping up all over the place trying to take care of, uh, put out these little fires that are going on. You know, how to, when do you pull the plug? Or, uh, you know, what uh, the question of abortion or the question of uh, nuclear weapons or the question of destroying, uh, uh, destroying the gene pool or the, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, how does one behave morally in the context of these uh, new developments which are, have really, in many ways, have overwhelmed our ethical tools that we've had to deal morally with the world? That seems to me to be a, a metaphor for what happened to the Israelites when they got to Palestine, which is that suddenly they, ha they are unprepared for the seduction of the historical myth. And one of the complicating factors is what's called Deuteronomic theology. The Deuteronomists were, in many ways, uh, religious pioneers who uh, put the scriptures together after the prophets. But their theology was uh, not quite up to what had to be dealt with. The Deuteronomic theology was basically rewards and punishments. And that is, if you do the right thing, God rewards you. And if you do the wrong thing, God punishes you. Now, what comes from that is that uh, if something bad is happening, that means you've been, you've been bad automatically. And if something good is happening, that means you've been good automatically. If Israel experiences a victory over one of her enemies, she experiences that as a good thing. She therefore decides that God willed that, that God had a hand in that. She did, the, the, Israel did believe that God, that Yahweh had a hand in this. So she said, well, that was a good thing. That was a victory. That's a blessing. God had a hand in that. Well, let's say 3,000 people died out there. Well, God had a hand in that. That gets God's hands bloody. It's, it begins to understand God as a warrior God, as a God who fights for our team and gives us victory, and so on. So the, the, the theology, the theological premises that Israel carried with her as she went into the historical arena made it less likely that she would resist the seductions of a historical Myth, when which she, and of course she did not. So she began to behave like everybody else. The thing about that seduction is that one is seduced into the myth, and the whole mimetic thing begins to happen, and they are caught in a mimetic vortex. The mimetic thing is they've got the land, we want it, or we've got the land, they want it, or whatever. And so we're fighting over land, mimetic desire, mimetic rivalry, mimetic violence, and everything becomes indistinguishable. You can't tell, pretty soon you can't tell the players without a scorecard. You can't tell Israel from the Philistines or the Canaanites. They're all the same. They're behaving the same way. They're all using the same alibi. 
And it's just a matter of time until uh, uh, the elders come to Samuel and say, give us a king like the other nations have. And the, the, one of the heaviest phrases in the Old Testament is that phrase, like the other nations have. And that's just put it, that's just, you know, making it explicit, what's already implicit, which is that they have become indistinguishable from everybody else. It meant that they were in history and meant to stay there and were willing to play by its games and were willing to buy into its mythological alibis for the, for the murders and so on. Seduced. Here's what Martin Buber says in his book about Moses. Always and everywhere in the history of religion, the fact that God is identified with success is the greatest obstacle to a steadfast religious life. In the biblical narrative of the Exodus and the wanderings in the desert, this identification becomes particularly acute. Moses has to engage in a never-interrupted, never-despairing struggle against the stiff-neckedness of Israel, that is, against this permanent passion for success. So that's, uh, that's total uh, involvement in the historical myth, and it must be broken down again and again. Well, what happens when finally it, is com it has completely taken over Israel, and she is, she is completely in, myth, in history, the historical myth, she, she has not only a king like the other nations have, but the na a nation like the other nations have. There's no, nothing, uh, there, they, there's still this, maybe this little theological exercise going on over here as long as the powers that be allow it to uh, continue, as long as it behaves itself, as long as it doesn't jeopardize, jeopardize national security, this little thing gets to operate. But it's completely, uh, it's a complete appendage to the nation state. And at that moment, because Israel was, was born of another experience. Israel was born of the experience of being the victim, not being the victimizer. And so she has in her, indelibly in her soul, this other uh, insistence. And so at the very moment when the historical myth has Israel so completely in its grip, out of the soul of Israel comes the prophets. It's very, it's, it's like, uh, it's, it's, it, I don't know how many of you read uh, Lauren Isley's book, uh, the, the Immense Journey. The fabulous thing in, 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 his, in his book where he talks about uh, um, the uh, beginning of the flowering plants. And he said, suddenly, in, in geological terms, suddenly the planet was, was alive with color. It was like a Disney. You know, you can imagine it in the dish. Suddenly, it exploded into color. Well, it's that kind of something stirring up out of the rhizome of the soul of Israel, and that is the prophets. And the prophets emerge in contest with the kings. The great contest is between the kings and the prophets for the soul of Israel. And they're the strangest people in the world. They are very strange people. And what I'd like to do today is talk about their strangeness and see if, uh, again, Gerard's analytical tools might help us see something in their strangeness which uh, we might not have seen before. Of the prophets, yeah. I'm going to talk about Amos a little bit uh, later. 
but just to uh, pick up on one thing, when Amos was, a, was told to go home, you know, shut up and go home, which is what the prophets get, get told, uh, he, the man who tells him that says, uh, why don't you go home and prophesy down someplace else, get out of here. And he says, I was no prophet, neither did I belong to any of the brotherhoods of prophets, the ancient prophetic uh, clans or, or uh, uh, guilds were were not unique to Israel. They were, they were uh, a, 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 an Oriental uh, uh, staple, but they were they were uh, gatherings. They were communal, uh, and they were usually these ecstatic things where they all whipped themselves up into a frenzy and sort of became tea leaves for whoever wanted to look on and see what was going to happen. Well, Amos said, "I am not a prophet, and I don't belong to one of those." prophetic gills. I was a shepherd and I looked after sycamore. But it was Yahweh who took me from the herding of the flock and said, go prophesy to my people Israel. So the unique, one of the unique things about the prophets is that they are called, they have had this thing called a call, a personal unique call. Samuel is the first noted prophet after, uh, after Moses himself. Samuel says, uh, uh, Samuel's asleep in the sanctuary. Uh, and uh, he gets the call. Well, the prophets get the call. And they're totally unique people in their cultural environment. And that's what I like to focus on. Gerhard von Rod is a German scholar who wrote, uh, was an expert on the prophets. And one of his books says this about them. These men were individuals, persons. They could say, I, in a way never before heard in Israel. At the same time, it has become apparent that the I of which these men were allowed to become conscious was very different from our present-day concept of personality. And I think the way to measure that, or the way I'd like to measure it today, is that these people were called, that is to say, they were God-centered, God-centered, and to the extent that one is God-centered, remember Moses said, uh, choose life so that you may live in the love of God, but to the extent that one is God-centered, one is not mimetic, okay, Mimet the imitative. One is not given to the mimetic seductions because one is, has, a, has a center that will hold. See, when the, when the mimetic vortex begins to, to uh, bring into its, into its uh, uh, wind tunnel everything that's not grounded, the God-centered one is grounded. And so what I'd like to do today is look at the prophets as people who are uniquely immune to the mimetic vortex because of their God-centeredness and therefore able to see it for what it is and pronounce it to the people caught up in it. Uh, in uh, Martin Buber's biography by Maurice Friedman, there's a passage where, uh, in which Friedman says this, true uniqueness forbears just that comparison of oneself with others that individuality thrives on. There's a wonderful thing in Buber's Eye and Thou, speaking of the God-centered life and what, uh, what it consists of. Buber is talking uh, about the I-Thou, the ultimate I-Thou, which is the I-Thou relationship with the divine. And uh, he says, it won't do you any good. It's, it, won't, it won't make your life any better in any way that will be observable. 
You won't be able to explain it to anybody else. But he says it will do one thing. It will teach you how to meet others and to hold your ground when you meet them. I'm not sure what that is in German. It's translated from German. And I'm sure it doesn't bristle with any kind of defensiveness. It could, you know, in the, to say it in those English words, we could read into it defensiveness. There's none of that. It is. It teaches you to meet others and to hold your ground when you meet them. And that's, that, to me, it goes right to the heart of the prophetic. As to say, someone who has had that I-thou, God-centered experience and who therefore is resistant to the mimetic vortex. Well, here's a story, and to me it's a, it's a wonderful metaphor for the whole thing, really. There was a lull of three years. This is, this is a story uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel. There's just been a split not long before this between the southern and the northern and southern kingdom. And this is a story in the northern kingdom. The king in the northern kingdom now is Ahab, who's a pretty despicable king. And the, and the king in the southern kingdom is Jehoshaphat. And this is a story about an incident at that time. There was a lull of three years with no fighting between Aram and Israel. Then in the third year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, paid a visit to the king of Israel. Now notice this. There's been no fighting for three years. You can... You can already see a kind of, uh, uh, well, look what happens. The king of Israel said to his officers, You are aware that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and yet we do nothing to wrest it away from the king of Aram. See, we haven't fought them for three years, and they've got a piece of land that belongs to us. It always belongs to us, doesn't it? It always belongs to us. And, and, and we're always simply satisfying our historical right. It's the mimetic, it's the onset is in the mimetic desire. They've got it and we want it. So he says, we, don't you know they have it and we haven't gone to get it back? He said to Jehoshaphat, will you come with me to fight at Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat answer, answered the king of Israel, I am as ready as you, my men as your men, my horses as your horses. See, that's the little challenge. And again, you see the mimetic thing operating here. Jehoshaphat, however, said to the king of Israel, First, please consult the word of Yahweh. So the king of Israel called the prophets together, about 400 of them. Bring them in and get them to pronounce a blessing on whatever's going on. Should I, should I march to attack Ramoth Gilead, he asked, or should I refrain? March, they replied. Yahweh will deliver it into the power of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no other prophet of Israel here for us to consult? The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is one more man through whom we can consult to Yahweh, but I hate him because he never has favorable prophecy for me, only unfavorable ones. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. The king should not say such things, Jehoshaphat said. Accordingly, the king of Israel summoned one of the eunuchs and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imlah, immediately. Now, just savor the scene, the scene. And, and f what, I, what I want to call out of this scene is the mimetic vortex. That is to say, it's so hard to resist. It is so hard to resist that when that mimetic thing begins to congeal, it is very difficult to resist. And those who think they can resist it easily are fooling themselves. It is hard to resist.
The king of, okay, here's the scene. The king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were both sitting on their thrones in full regalia. See? This is like hail to the chief on, by the Navy band and all the rest of it. It's like the pomp and ceremony of this grand thing. At the threshing floor outside the gate of Samaria with all the prophets raving in front of them. 400 of these guys. Just so much so. Look, watch this. One of the prophets was Zedekiah, okay? Zedekiah had made himself iron horn. Yahweh says this, he said, with these I will gore the Arameans till, they make an en till we make an end of them. He's just so much into it. And so he's gotten all costumed out. I mean, he's... Watch Zedekiah. Zedekiah is a prophet, quote-unquote, with no resistance to the mimetic vortex. So when he is asked for his prophecy, he just says, right on. See, that's, his, that's his prophetic word. Right on. He says. This is a new kind of prophecy happening in Israel. Micaiah's prophecy is a new kind of prophecy. It's not the prophecy of ecstasy. You know, uh, T.S. Eliot says, we must go by way in which there is no ecstasy. And he's not talking about some things that we might call ecstasy, but he's talking about that kind of getting caught up in that again. And all the prophets prophesied the same. They were all in unison. This is unanimity. March to Ramoth Gilead, they said, and conquer, and Yahweh will deliver it into the power of the king. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said, Here are all the prophets as one man speaking favorably to the king. Try to speak like one of them and foretell success. But Micaiah answered, As Yahweh lives, what Yahweh says to me, I will utter. When he came to the king, the king said, Micaiah, should we march to attack Ramoth Gilead or should we refrain? He answered, March and conquer. Yahweh will deliver it into the power of the king. Now, you didn't expect that, did you? What happened to our hero? What happened to our hero? The same thing that happens to us. You think you can resist it? Wait till you get caught up in it. But he is still our hero because after one bounce, he comes to his senses. The king said, How often must I put you on oath to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of Yahweh? Now see, the way this text is written and usually read and interpreted is that that first comment by Micaiah was ironical and uh, cynical. But I, I, think, uh, I think it's legitimate to interpret that as what happens to us, which it's usually after we have gotten caught up in it a little bit that we, we awaken to it. I, I think that's certainly been my experience. So then, second time, Micaiah speaks the truth. Now, wonderful. you have to remember now, total unanimity. The text has said more than once that they are as one, totally unified, totally together, totally committed. I mean, this is, this is what every political leader has longs for, total unanimity. That is when you're in the mimetic vortex. Micaiah, who is outside the mimetic vortex, looks, and what does he see? Quote, I have seen all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep without a shepherd. Now that is his x-ray vision 
of what's really happening in front of him. It looks like this fabulous joint venture where everybody enters. In fact, it's sheep scattered with no shepherd. That, you know, no less a person than Carl Jung in the early 30s looked at what was happening in Germany and said he thought it looked like a national revitalization. That is to say, when you, it's so difficult to avoid being caught up in those things that we all have to realize that we do. And only somebody, and, and even somebody God-centered like Micaiah has to maybe take a, 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 a one bad bounce before he can pull himself out of it again. What I want to emphasize about the prophets is that they have, because of their God-centeredness, they have an immunity to the mimetic vortex and therefore can be of service to the people who are still trapped in it. Can speak a truth to them that these people could never have, never have arrived at on their own. The final scene in the Micaiah story tells you it's, the, it's intimations of things to come in the prophetic uh, development in Israel. Then Zedekiah, remember he was the guy who, he was the prophet who was totally caught up in it. Zedekiah came up and struck Micaiah on the jaw. The king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and hand him over to Ammon, governor of the city, and to Prince Joash, and say, These are the king's orders. Put this man in prison and feed him on nothing but bread and water until I come back safe and sound. You know, there's uh, this wonderful phrase which I'm beginning to inject with new meaning, which is, uh, there's one in every crowd. It may be that that's what makes the crowd into a social unit, the fact that there's one that's outside of it. You see, to remain outside of that vortex is to become the enemy of it. Those in the vortex recognize somebody who's outside of it and always see them as antagonistic, as a threat. Here's a general rule. People caught in a delusion always regard people not caught in that same delusion as enemies. And so no sooner does Micaiah do the prophetic thing than that unanimity is turned against him because he's trying to burst their bubble. And they know it in some, in some intuitive way, instinctive way. They know it. And they try to punish him. But notice the king said, feed him on nothing but bread and water until I come back safe and sound. Micaiah gets the last word. He says, if you come back safe and sound, Yahweh has not spoken through me. And of course he does not come back safe and sound. The myth that was seducing the people of Israel was the historical myth the prophet that could be of use to them would only be one who could resist the mimetic vortex which the historical myth had generated. That is to say, somebody who could be outside of that and recognize it for what it is, to see it for what it is. History, as, as we know, uh, repeats itself with endless variation on the theme. But it doesn't often repeat itself in one lifetime enough so that one person can weary of it. Well, the prophet somehow is able to telescope a bigger chunk of history and see it for what it is. 
And that's why I want to read this poem. This is Margaret Atwood being a prophet. This is a poem by Margaret Atwood. And she has telescoped an experience and has, in a sense, become uh, stepped out of history and seen it for what it really is. At first I was given centuries to wait in caves, in leather tents, knowing you would never come back. Then it speeded up. Only several years between the day you jangled off into the mountains and the day it was spring again, I rose from the embroidery frame at the messenger's entrance. That happened twice, or was it more? And there was once, not so long ago, you failed and came back in a wheelchair with a mustache and a sunburn and were insufferable. Time before that, though, I remember I had a good eight months between running alongside the train, skirts hitched, handing you violets in at the window and opening the letter. I watched your snapshot fade for 20 years. The last time I drove to the airport still dressed in my factory overalls, the wrench I had forgotten sticking out of the back pocket, there you were, zippered and helmeted. It was zero hour. You said, be brave. It was at least three weeks before I got the telegram and could start regretting. But recently, the bad evenings, there were only seconds between the warning on the radio and the explosion. My hands don't reach you. On quieter nights, you jump up from your chair without even touching your dinner, and I can scarcely kiss you goodbye before you run out into the street and they shoot. End of poem. But you see how that has gotten a sense of the whole thing. Recognized it for what it is. And become, unquestionably, because of that, less seducible into the next, into its next uh, episode. I think of this wonderful thing of um, uh, Simone Weil when she was uh, right on the verge of being uh, baptized into the Roman Catholic Church and she told her friend, the priest who she'd been working with, she said, I can't do it. She said, as long as there are people outside of the church, I must be among them. Uh, and it's not everybody's cup of tea, but it, there's a recognition there of the role of the... Uh, that comes from somebody who has read the New Testament and understood it. You see, it doesn't mean everybody who reads it and understands it has to do that, but it's clearly somebody who's read the New Testament and understands it. Uh, there are lots of cults around, and, and people, family members of people who get caught in cults are concerned about deprogramming and all the rest of it. Meanwhile, the big one, God is all in it. And, uh, and one of the ways we fall into it. I mean, Jesus said, resist not evil. And it was immediately concluded that he didn't mean that. Uh, because what else could we conclude? With, I mean, are we supposed to be doormats? Well, what's the door going into? <laughs> Maybe we are. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, the first of the classical prophets is Amos. He comes up out of the southern kingdom. He's from Tekoa, which is south of Jerusalem. And he goes to the northern kingdom, and he begins to prophesy there at a particular moment in that kingdom's history. And the moment is 
30 years into the reign of Jeroboam II, everything is going swimmingly as far as the northern kingdom is concerned. Uh, they're on top of the historical cycle. They're uh, prosperous. They're uh, militarily powerful. They're secure, etc., uh, etc. Et There's only one problem, and that is that there is a growing gap between the rich and the poor. And when uh, Amos arrives on the scene, he begins to prophesy at a at a moment when the Israelites are entering the temple at Bethel for a great annual national cultic festival. And as they are streaming in, this, this would be something like a combination of, the, of uh, the 4th of July and Christmas, all rolled into one. And uh, everybody is in that kind of mood of self-congratulations and uh, so on and so forth. God is with them and history is on their side and all the rest of it. And so Amos uh, stands at the door of the temple of Bethel as they start to come in, and he starts to prophesy, and he prophesies in a way that they are probably used to hearing. It begins, he starts picking out their historical enemies and pointing out what's wrong with them. And so he begins with Damascus. For the three crimes in the four of Damascus, they have threshed Gilead with iron threshing sledges, and then, and they will be punished. And for the three crimes in the four of Gaza, another enemy of theirs, they have deported entire nations as slaves to Edom and for Tyre and Phoenicia and Edom. Edom, for instance, he has persecuted his brother with the sword, stifling his pity, persistently nursing his fury and ever cherishing his rage. And Ammon, they have disemboweled the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend their own frontiers. All of the condemnations of these, of these surrounding culture groups are war crimes and he is accusing them of war crimes. And war crimes are the symptom of those people caught up in the historical mimesis, the, the historical myth, the mimetic vortex of history. And they have to have a prophet tell them that because the historical myth provides the alibi that makes the murder morally conscionable. And so the prophet comes along and says, look at them, look at them, look at them, what they're doing. They're killing and slaughtering and, and crippling uh, for the sake of this myth of theirs. Well, as you can see, this is, draws a big crowd in Israel because, hey, hey, let's let them have it. Amen. Let's let them have it. And he's letting them have it. In a way, you could say, not that he needs to because they're about to enter their own little mimetic vortex when they go into the temple, but you could, in a way you could say that what Amos is doing is creating a mimetic vortex. He has worked them up into that kind of unanimous right on. See? And the, he, has, he has worked them up into that using righteous indignation. And they are righteously indignant and as one. And then he says... He then begins to... Remember what Moses did with the, with the golden calf? He burned it, grind it, put it on the water and make them drink it. Well, it's very interesting. Amos does something very similar to that. He takes their idol, which is the historical idol of their nation state, and he does something like that. He turns it around on them and forces them to... and shoves it down their throat. First of all, though, he stops to make a critique of Judah. His, he's from the southern kingdom, Judah. And their crime, their, their three crimes and four, were that they rejected the law of Yahweh and failed to keep his precepts. Well, that's a little bit closer to home than these others. 
but it's not Israel, the northern kingdom. And then he turns on Israel. They have sold the virtuous man for silver, the poor man for a pair of sandals, because they trample on the heads of the ordinary people and push the poor out of their path, because father and son have both resorted to the same girl profaning my name, meaning visiting the temple prostitutes, and so on and so forth, they will be destroyed. So suddenly the, the crowd is silent because he has taken that, first of all, created the mimetic vortex and then shattered it in a way that might reveal to them what it's all about, what has just happened. Well, what Amos did as they were going in, as the, as the self-congratulatory crowd was going into the temple at Bethel, is what um, W. H. Auden did in about 1950 in America. Amos was from the north, southern kingdom. He went to the north and prophesied. Uh, Auden was from England. He came to the United States at a moment when the United States was uh, as self-congratulatory as uh, it could be in this century. And Auden starts out like Amos does, that is, saying things that seem to apply to the, uh, to the, to the historical adversary. He says, For the present stalks abroad like the past, and its wrongs whimper and are ignored. And the truth cannot be hid. Somebody chose their pain. What needn't have happened did. And everybody, you can see, they would elbow each other and say, the Germans. And then Auden goes on, but the stars burn overhead, unconscious of final end. As I walk home to bed, asking what judgment waits my person, all my friends, and these United States. And the crowd slowly disperses, walks away. Uh, well, that's what Amos is doing. Well, that's what the prophet is supposed to do, is to speak the truth in the context of the mimetic vortex. And he, has, and he does so. But he calls attention to the injustice. And I wanted to use, as I did some years ago when we studied the prophets, this little metaphor again, my little prophetic sign. The pro prophets often use prophetic signs because things can't be put into words. And, it, and also because people caught up in a mimetic vortex uh, are usually working at a very low level of consciousness so that you can't, you have to find some sort of uh, Sesame Street uh, approach to their consciousness to get them aware of it. Well, what happens is this. Amos sees injustice in the same way that with this magnifying glass I can see something enlarged and intense. And he sees injustice and he speaks injustice to this people caught up in their own self-congratulations. He says, yes, but how about the homeless or whatever? How about that? He's very intense. Those things are very large in his consciousness. But as the prophetic movement itself begins to develop in the course of, in, in the course of about a century and a half in, in uh, Israelite history, the magnifying glass gets used on a larger and larger scene, not just this social injustice that's right under their noses. It starts to be used like this, and one lifts the magnifying glass from the page of the immediate historical moment and begins to look at the larger historical uh, panorama and the same thing happens that happens when you do that with a magnifying glass. I'll pass around you and try it, which is the world turns upside down. And suddenly, the prophet is looking at that, Jeremiah, second Isaiah, looking at that and saying, oh my God, the world is upside down. What I want to speak to briefly is Amos, and this is, runs through all the prophetic writings really, except uh, less so 
and the, there are a couple of uh, prophets connected to the uh, priestly cult, but uh, it's a very strong feature in the prophetic writings, and that is the anti-cultic nature of it. Now, we had talked about how uh, the, the, animal, the cult of animal sacrifice had been an early primitive tool for uh, a sort of methadone program for keeping human victimization from establishing itself in, in Israel's uh, historical repertoire. But at the moment the prophets uh, come on the scene, uh, that cult has become uh, an end in itself and so uh, such an appendage to the nation-state and, and, and the historical myth that it's doing nothing ex except uh, presenting itself as religion. And so the prophets begin to critique it. Well, okay, here's an example of it. Yahweh speaking through Amos to the people of Israel. As, by the way, they're going into the temple at Bethel. Right? He's calling out to them on their way in. I hate and despise your feast. I take no pleasure in your solemn festival. When you offer me holocaust, and then there's a phrase missing in the text, I reject your oblations and refuse to look at your sacrifices of fatted cattle. Let me have no more din of your chanting, no more of your strumming on harps. Now, again, we're using this tool of the memetic crisis to analyze this. But you see, we, you can see what, what's being critiqued here is a kind of creating the mimetic vortex using the cultic apparatus. Uh, the chanting and the din and the sacrifices and the, and the rah-rah and all the rest of it. And he's saying, Yahweh says, he'll have none of it. God will not be mocked. And then he says, let, Yahweh still speaking through Amos, let justice flow like water and integrity like an unfailing stream. That's what Yahweh wants. Justice, the words integrity, usually translated righteousness, like an unfailing stream. The priest at the temple of Bethel comes out. It's a little bit like uh, uh, Zedekiah in that story of Micaiah. Uh, Amaziah, the priest at the temple of Bethel, comes out and says uh, to Amos, Go away, seer. Get back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there. Do your prophesying there. We, know, we want no more prophesying in Bethel. This is the royal sanctuary the national temple. See? You can see there the historical myth having completely encased the cultic apparatus. This is the royal sanctuary, the national shrine. And that calls attention to what Amos is doing, the audacity of what Amos is doing. Because for us, who we don't have a, a national cult, right? So we can't feel the outrage that the people of Israel felt when Amos spoke his condemnation of it. Or can we? Abraham Heschel, who wrote a fabulous two-volume work on the uh, prophets in a, in a footnote in one of those volumes, says this about the sacrificial cult, which Amos is critiquing. The sacrificial cult was endowed with supreme political significance. It was the chief requirement for the security of the land and may be regarded as analogous to the cult of military defense in our own day. Both have their roots in the concern for security, cease to appease the gods with offerings on the altars, and their anger will strike you down. Sacrifice is a way of preventing the attack. Abraham Heschel, 1962. The cult of national defense. So what you have to do is imagine an Amos 
standing before the temple of that cult saying, God will not be mocked. We can have no more of that. What must happen is justice and righteousness and integrity and not that. Well, it just so happens this last week I read a review of a book entitled uh, Nuclear... De I'm just... This is just contemporary. Entitled Nuclear Deterrence, Morality, and Realism printed by Oxford University Press by, two, by three uh, people, a constitutional lawyer, a philosopher, and a theologian. And they conclude that since it would be a moral uh, outrage to use them, nuclear weapons, uh, it's a moral outrage to threaten to use them, to have them, to make them, or to participate in any way whatsoever in the cult. Even though, they say, it may mean that we lose in the historical game. We simply cannot do it. Now, I'm, I don't want to... I'd rather stay with Amos here and talk about what the prophets are doing. But the point is, you see, that that is... What we have to do is recognize the prophetic voice when it emerges in the idiom of our day. So, here's Micah. In Micah's critique of what's happening in Israel, he says, the devout have vanished from the land. There is not one honest man left. Now, how could he say that? There's not one honest man left. Now, either that's hyperbole or there is some way in which there's truth in it. All, he says, there's not one honest man left. All are lurking for blood. Every man hunting down his brother. Now, you say, oriental hyperbole. But maybe he is, what he's seeing is violence in its larval stage. Seeing what you can't see if you're caught up in the vortex. He says, Listen to this, you princes of the house of Jacob, rulers of the house of Israel, you who loathe justice and pervert all that is right, you who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with crime. Now the prophet can see that because he's not caught up in it. And so he condemns it. He says, Zion will become a plow land, Jerusalem a heap of rubble, and the mountain of the temple a wooded height. And the next thing he says is, he turns it around. And he says, in the days to come, the mountain of the temple will be on top of the mountains and be lifted higher than the hills, and all the nations will come to it and will recognize Israel as the model for history. And they will come to Israel to learn of God's ways. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not lift up sword against nation and they will study war no more. It's the end of the capitulation to the historical myth. Teilhard de Jardin uh, said, uh, the, the future belongs to those who can give the next generation reasons for living and hoping. And that's what Israel was called to do. That's what the Bible calls us to do. But we can only do that by being independent of the reigning mythological delusion, which is the historical one.